You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Bible, there is this concept that scholars refer to as divine counsel. It's a well-known scholarly concept because you see it all over in your Bibles. In fact, if you're really paying attention, it's hard to miss. It's, it's all over the place. Divine counsel works like this. In heaven, there's God's throne room, his counsel room, and he invites spiritual beings to come and speak into decisions that are made on the earth. So say that something Uh, that there's going to be this decision to make. He'll put it out there. What do you guys think? What should we do? And they'll give ideas. And sometimes God will be like, okay, I see your idea. I I acknowledge that. That will actually work. Let's do it that way. I know it sounds weird to us. We always think like God's just up in heaven making all decisions by by himself. And God is the one who like gives the go ahead. Okay. But God apparently works with other spiritual beings, just like he works with human beings. You see the divine counsel work on earth as well, right? Think of Abraham. God's going to go get rid of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's like, well, what if you could find 50 righteous people there? And suddenly Abraham's like this human council member. Okay, I guess if you could find 50, I wouldn't do that. Okay, how about 40? Okay, for 40, I I wouldn't get rid of Sodom and Gomorrah. So you see like this interaction. Would God have gotten rid of it if Abraham hadn't spoken into it? Well, he ended up getting rid of Sodom and Gomorrah anyways because there wasn't any righteous people found there. But at the same time, you see like this God looking for input, looking for feedback, looking to rule creation. He's the one who makes all decisions, but he works with other people. That's how the book of Job starts. The book of Job tells us that the divine council was in session, that all the sons of God, which in the Old Testament was an upper level spiritual being, All these upper level spiritual beings come to the council room to make a decision. But there's one one spiritual being that's come along with the sons of God for the divine council meeting. And Job, the book of Job refers to him as Satan. Now, Satan is a noun in the Bible. Okay, so just like that is a table. This table does not have a name. Right. I don't. How you doing table? Like, I don't I don't name it. Josh the table. Right. In the same way, Satan is a noun. It means either adversary or accuser. So the sons of God come to this divine council meeting and a Satan, the Satan, an adversary, an accuser, this spiritual being with kind of this like bitter side to him comes in as well. And God sees this Satan and he says, "Uh, where have you come from? (laughs) And this Satan, this adversary, this accuser says, Oh, I've just been walking the earth to and fro, checking it out. And you can tell by the way, like he's here as though he's about to like call humanity out. He doesn't like humanity. I've wandered across the whole earth. And let me tell you, humanity, they're the worst. I don't like them. And God's like, well, okay. uh, I know that uh, humanity could be pretty bad out there, but consider Job. Job's a good guy. He's a righteous guy. He's been following me. He's been living faithfully following me. And and he's very smart. He's very wise. Job's a good guy. Think of him. Not all humanity is bad. And this Satan, this accuser, this adversary says, okay, all right, but 
you know, he's got it pretty good. You've got like a hedge around him. This is where that term hedge of protection comes from. You've got kind of like a hedge all around him, taking care of him, protecting him. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. You want to see how bad humanity is. You want to see that they're all the same. You want to see that they all would turn against you. Job, this faithful guy who's following you, look, I've seen all humanity to and fro throughout the earth. You go ahead and take everything that Job has, and I bet you he curses you to your face. This is the divine counsel in session. The Satan, the accuser, comes into the political courtroom of God and makes an accusation against humanity. They're all the worst. Even this guy who loves you, take away everything he has, and I bet he curses you to your face. Now, we don't know that that Satan in that particular passage is the Satan that we refer to in the New Testament as, like, the Satan of the dark world, if you will, right? We don't know if it's that particular Satan or not. But we do understand that the Bible starts calling the Satan of the New Testament Satan, Because they're thinking of someone with that attitude. Someone who's always accusing humanity, who hates humanity, who wants to see them burn, who wants to see them all fall apart and doesn't care anything about them. That's why that name Satan gets stuck to Satan. It may just be the name of a noun, but Satan carries that personality. So that is the name that he gets. Now, Satan enters into the story and starts to tempt Jesus, right? This is a well-known passage. In the Bible, Jesus is fasting for 40 days, and while he's fasting, along comes Satan to tempt him. We don't know if he, like, showed up physically or Jesus having a vision, but in some way, Satan is present there, and Satan gives him three temptations in Matthew 4, the way that Matthew writes it. The first temptation, Satan says, if you are the Son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? You're hungry, right? So turn these stones into bread. Let's get some food. Get some grub. Eat something. Fill yourself up. And Jesus responds to him with scripture. Tells him that that bread is, uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Satan tries another temptation. Okay, all right, all right, fair enough. Uh, And this time Satan actually quotes scripture. Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem, to the holy place, to the sacred place, to that place where God has dwelt on the earth in the past as a locative presence kind of place. And Jesus is taken to the top of the temple and Satan's like, all right, tell you what, Psalm 91, Jesus. Psalm 91 says, if you just, uh, uh, it, says, it says that the angels will take care of you, that you won't so much as even stub your toe. Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan takes that to a a really large capacity. Jesus, think about it. You can't die. You want people to follow you, right? You want want to, to get everyone to pay attention to you. Well, here's an idea. Jump off this building. Angels will grab you on the way down and right there in the holy place of God's sacred presence where his temple has been established, you will float to the ground and everyone will see how great you are. You want people to follow you. You want masses. You want people to like to you, flock to you. This is the way to do it. So Jesus proposes an idea. Sorry, Satan proposes an idea. Try this out. Get their attention. If you are the son of God, 
turn these rocks into bread. If you are the son of God, jump off this building and let angels save you. And Jesus responds to him once again with scripture. So Satan tries another temptation. This time he tells Jesus, look, dude, uh, the whole world, I'm, I'm pretty much in charge of it. Like everything is in my control. He, he takes Jesus to the top of a mountain and says, look every direction. All this is under my domain. I know you're here to install a kingdom, right? You're here to take over this place. Well, I'll tell you what, do it my way. Instead of worshiping God, instead of worshiping your daddy, why don't you just turn to me instead and worship me? I already got it. I'll give you the keys. I'll give you it all. You can have it from there. We'll, we'll rule this world together. And Jesus responds, no. And once again, he does so by quoting scripture. You shall worship the Lord your God and only him shall you serve. This takes us to today's passage, something I never noticed until this message. Jesus is hanging on a cross. He's already been mocked, but now he's getting mocked again. He's going to get mocked by the chief priests and these religious people, but he's also going to get mocked by people just passing by. He's going to get mocked by people passing by. And in this case, these people come by and they've heard the stories about Jesus and they look up at him. And they tell him something very interesting in Matthew 27. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. When you are writing a book, you use specific phrases to link people back to other parts of your book. In this case, Matthew is using the exact language of Satan tempting Jesus in the desert to get people to catch on to the fact that Satan is tempting Jesus while he hangs on the cross. If you are the Son of God, turn these rocks into bread. If you are the Son of God, leap off this temple and let angels save you. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. This isn't the first time that Jesus has heard temptations of Satan through people. Happened with Peter, right? Jesus tells Peter, I'm going to have to die. Peter's like, no, no, that will never happen to you. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. You've set your mind on the things of this world instead of on the things of God. See, it is a big temptation to Jesus to go any other route, to take any other passage. Because nobody wants to die, let alone on a cross, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible goes to, to great lengths to show just how much agony Jesus was in. This was not an easy thing to do. He was going to feel the pain. He's in the garden. One gospel talks about how he's bleeding sweat. There's blood coming out of his forehead. He's so intense with this moment. Another gospel talks about how angels ministered to him during this time. Dying on the cross was not an easy thing for Jesus. And as he's there, he begins to ask God for another way. Satan's given him other ways. Hey, Jesus, you want the following? Jump off the building. Hey, Jesus, you want this world? Just worship me. 
And here's Jesus probably facing all these decisions. Satan's giving me a few ways out, but God, I'm turning to you. And in this moment, the way that you want me to inherit the world, the way that you want me to be great is to get nailed to a cross and bleed to death. And that's really hard to do. So if there's any way that this idea, this plan can be taken and we could do a different route, please, let's do the other route. But not my will, but your will be done. And now Jesus is in the full weight of it all, hanging on a cross, when Satan walks up to him again, if you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. And in this moment, I think you're supposed to be hearing Satan repeat the original temptation that he was giving. If you're the Son of God, come down from that cross. How are you going to do that? you got angels at your disposal, right? The angels won't let you even stub your toe. You're hung on a cross. That's well beyond stubbing your toe. You can get off of there. In fact, I just heard you, Jesus, as I was stalking you in the Garden of Gethsemane. I heard what you told Peter. You told Peter you have 12 legions of angels at your disposal. When Peter used his sword, you said, Peter, no, that's not the way we're going to do this. I have to take on the cross. But then you told Peter, you got 12 legions of angels at your disposal. A legion, Jesus, I know, a legion's like the biggest, uh, one of the bigger amounts of a unit for an army in Greek times. So what you waiting for? Get down off that cross. This is the way you want to go? Want to hang here and die for these people? Just like I tried telling your daddy. These people aren't worth it. They'll turn on you. They'll go against you. They'll murder you. And here you are, a son of God, hung up on a cross, letting these people kill you. I'll tell you what. Don't just call those angels down to pull you off the cross. Call all those angels down and kill them all. Get rid of them all. I told you they're not worth it. They will turn on you. You take away the good things that they have, they will turn on you. Look at you, all the good stuff you've done. You walked all around, you healed people, you took care of them. Twelve legions of angels at your disposal. Get them down here and wipe them all out. Satan would love to see that. Now, as we saw when Jesus was tempted, Satan would often propose scripture to him, right? In this particular case, he's like, hey, Psalm 91, Jesus, call down angels to protect you. But what we always see Jesus do after he's been tempted is Jesus quotes something back. So the question is, if, if we are supposed to understand that Satan is walking up to Jesus on the cross in this moment in Matthew and tempting him to call down angels and get off the cross, then is Jesus going to respond with scripture back to him? The answer is yes. Just a few verses later, Jesus says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Satan calls out Psalm 91, this glorious psalm about how Jesus will be protected, how no demons will be able to take him on, how, how hordes of armies will fall at his side. And Jesus instead responds with Psalm 22. My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? A bitter psalm about suffering. And yet, God, despite the suffering I'm going through, I will praise you anyways, and your nation will be established. So I want to close by reading you those psalms. I want you to see the psalm that Satan wants Jesus to embody versus the psalm that Jesus wants to embody. Psalm 91, here's what Satan is telling Jesus to do. Because you've got to understand, like, these are psalms, they're songs, okay? They're stuck in their head. So, like, if I were to say, oh, the overwhelming, reckless love of God, when I say that to you, the rest of that song just appeared in your head. You're supposed to understand, like, I'm trying to get you to think of all the context of that song. In the same way, when Satan just quotes a part of Psalm 91, Jesus should be having the whole psalm running through his head. And here's what Jesus would hear. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the deadly pestilence, and he will cover you with his pinions. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge... No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near to your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways on their hands. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion, the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That right there is a very positive psalm. One that you might want to be singing out when you're hanging on a cross. One that you might want to use with revenge of God's words of how he's going to send his angels and and empower you to wipe them all out and take back your, your life, take back your kingdom. But that is not the psalm Jesus quotes. Instead, he quotes Psalm 22. Eli, Eli, lama sebaktani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you were delivered them. You delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. 
Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan around me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him. Bow down. Before him bow down all who go to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Psalm 91 is what Satan tempts him to, which... Kind of sounds like a prosperity gospel of sorts. Jesus, you're hanging on the cross, but the Bible declares good things for you, protection for you, uh, that you are going to have all of your enemies defeated and the angels will watch over you. Take this for you. And Jesus instead quotes Psalm 22. Even in the midst of being despised and I'm dead and I'm falling apart and people are mocking me and betting on my clothes and just everything is hit rock bottom still I will praise God and his nation will be established and praise will go up to him forever now here's the thing a lot of times in the church today we want to be a Psalm 91 kind of people yeah, everything goes right for us. Yeah, God's got our back. Yeah, everything's just going to work out exactly as we want it. And you know what? Jesus eventually does get to Psalm 91. He does die, but he comes back to life and everything is subjected under his feet. Nothing can face him. But Jesus became a Psalm 91 kind of person by going through Psalm 22 first. And a lot of times in Christianity, we just want Psalm 91 without Psalm 22. 
We want to have everything work out for us. We want all the promises, protection, and all this. But we don't want to carry a cross. But you get to the resurrection life by going through the cross first. Suffering is a part of the gospel, is a part of what Jesus had to go through to give us the gospel, and is a part of what he calls us to when we follow after him. So I welcome you today to remind yourself of the greatness of this responsibility to be Christians, of the suffering that we sometimes will have to face unjustly sometimes like Jesus did, and how that is not a bad thing. But when we live in a way that we suffer and we still praise God anyway, we come out the other side headed towards the Psalm 91. So as we come and take communion, which is an act of remembering suffering, don't just take it remembering someone who suffered for you, but take it remembering that this is part of a call to suffer ourselves. That if that's where Jesus takes us, like, he, like God did with Jesus, like God did with Paul, like God has done with countless others, leading them into suffering for the sake of the gospel, so we too must follow that path. So when you're ready, you can take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and then you can, uh, you can do whatever you like. You can take it to the altar. You can head to your table. You can go uh, see if there's any prayer team available to pray for you. Um, but just as you press into this time, just dedicate yourselves more and more in this communion time to go the distance where Jesus calls you to. Uh, Nathan Foster used to always tell me when we meet, suffer well. And I extend that invitation to you today. I tell you, there's just something about people who suffer well. It installs the kingdom of heaven so much better than Christians who are bitter all the way down. It depletes the kingdom of darkness, takes out the kingdom of hell, puts heaven in its place. Just like Jesus in this grand exorcism of sorts, taking all this suffering on for the sake of the world and expelling all this darkness that he had installed his kingdom in a new light and at a new level. So I extend to you the invitation to suffer well as well, to be Psalm 22 suffer. So the band's going to lead us in a time of worship. And as we do this, uh, just allow God to work with your heart wherever it may be to take you a little deeper into what his spirit's calling you to. So, God, here we are, uh, your people. We are not our own. And we know ahead of us is something much greater. Something we can't even imagine. Something that words fall short in explaining. Jesus, when you talk to the Sadducees about resurrection life, You show them just how much they don't get it and how no human being can get it. No marriage there, no sex there. Things that are very basic things here on earth, completely gone in a resurrected life. Exchange for a greater intimacy with you. Showing us that things like marriage is just a foretaste of the faithfulness and love 
that we will experience one day in resurrected life. So here we are knowing that there is more ahead of us, that there is Psalm 91 and that you did eventually find it, that you got there through Psalm 22. And you don't call us into unnecessary suffering, but you tell us to take joy when we do suffer. And so we remain open to the way that you craft and chip at us every time difficulty comes along, that they would grow us into deeper Christians who suffer well, who follow you closely. So here we are. And as we take part of your sacrament of communion, may you just work in our hearts in a new way. In Jesus' name, amen.